All right, welcome to the Neural Information Retrieval Podcast. Uh, this is Sergi Castella speaking from Zeta Alpha. And with me, I have my co-host. I'm Andrew Yates, Assistant Professor at University of Amsterdam. Cool. Yeah. And we're here in the episode three to talk about this paper that I have here called Learning to Retrieve Passages Without Supervision by um, Ori Ram et al. from the University of um, Tel Aviv. So um, why don't we start uh, with a brief um, uh, motivation of why we chose uh, this paper? Maybe you can go first. Why? Why? Yeah. This? So there's been a lot of work um, in neural IR, how to in neural methods have improved retrieval quite a bit. But all of them use labeled data in some way or another. So maybe they train on MS Marco and then transfer to some other domain. But there's always labeled training data. So I think the motivation here is to try to get rid of that labeled training data. Mm -hmm. um, so so some self-supervised task rather than relevance judgments. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's super interesting because as we're going to talk later, uh, to me, this relates uh, quite strongly to this question of when are neural retrievers going to become as convenient as you know, BM25 or, or, or something like that, which I think they're, they're not um, there yet. Uh, but these kind of works, I think, are, are really um, interesting to follow um, in, that, uh, in that sense. Um, so shall, shall we uh, just uh, start um, by giving an overview of what this paper does? Yeah. Um, so essentially they take machinery that people use for, for neural ranking normally and they train it with a self-supervised objective rather than labeled data, like I mentioned. So the self-supervised objective here they call, I think, span retrieval. Yeah. Um, the idea is they find passages that contain the same span of text. So like a name like Yoko Ono. One of these passages they modify into a query. The other other passage is relevant to the query, they say. So now they just need a, a negative passage, and now they have a, a training triple. Mm -hmm. So the, the query, good example, negative example. Yeah, and uh, can you just uh, step back for a second? And I mean, uh, this whole paper... Um, uh, is in the space of um, they, what they what is called open domain question answering. Um, so I think it would be useful if you could give a, yeah. like a quick uh, definition of what that uh, right. So means. We're, we're kind of I guess focusing on the retrieval part of this task. But for open domain question answering, there's normally two parts. The goal of the task um, is to essentially just answer an open-ended question. So you can imagine, you know, ask me anything that Wikipedia can answer, and some model should be able to find the right Wikipedia page and then find the right answer in that page and then give the answer to you. So you know mm -hmm. what year was you know some city founded, something like mm -hmm. that. So this is the open domain question answering task. People often, but not always, break this down into these two stages. So okay. the first stage is finding candidate documents. So what are the Wikipedia pages that might give me the answer here? The second stage is some reader where we look at those candidate documents and then look for the answer in them exactly. So in this paper, um, they're focusing really on the retriever part of this architecture. Okay. Um, so they, they want to improve open domain question answering by finding, you know, better or more candidate documents so that ultimately they'll be able to find the answer, um, you know, when they look in the document. Okay. So in this case, even though the paper is concerned, like it's talking about open domain question answering, it, this is virtually equivalent to what you would call passage retrieval. Or, or something like that. Right, exactly. So it kind of they, they're interested in it in the context of this task, but what they're actually measuring is just like a passage retrieval step. Mm -hmm. So they, they stop before measuring the, the reader, which yeah, is not yeah. their contribution. Yeah. So they, they focus on the retriever. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I found it a little bit interesting at the beginning when I read this, why uh, would they frame it as open domain question answering when they were just doing... Like, why... why uh, maybe I'm just getting a little bit uh, too far ahead, but why would they... Um, 
uh, frame it as we're doing open domain question answering instead of just uh, passage retrieval or yeah, you know, prove that, their method. In that's a retrieval. good question. It's hard to answer. I can kind of speculate. Um, I, I mean, I, I think they have some NLP background from other papers they've published. So I think the, the technique they're using in this paper was in an earlier um, NLP paper. Okay. So I think this is more natural for them because open domain question answering, I think, is a more common task if you look at something like ACL. Um, they they oh, both right. appear. Yeah, maybe this NLP. is too subjective, but maybe it was a bit of a more natural choice. Okay. Um, okay. But also maybe more practically, there are a lot more data sets here. So they evaluate ultimately on, I think, like five or six data sets. Um, whereas with passage retrieval, there's really just MS Marco and things like Treptic learning that are new annotations on MS Marco documents. Mm. So there's not a lot of domains with, you know, a lot of labeled data. Okay. Um, I think they try to take advantage of all the data available for these data sets. Both, they look at training a little bit, but even just for evaluation, they're fairly large. Oh, I think that that's, uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, so, um, all right. If we uh, start diving a little bit more into the related work section, I would like to ask you if you could sort of gloss over the, um, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, so I, I wouldn't want to spend too much time on this, but um, what are like, uh, the main families of of uh, retrieval kind of algorithms or models, and this distinction between supervision and self supervision. Yeah, um, so I guess we can break them down into as uh, statistical or lexical matching models like BM twenty five, and then different types of neural models. I don't know how much you want to get into the types of neural models. Um, no, not really. Maybe, not, maybe just yeah. uh, maybe just uh, um, the the timeline of. Until when you know uh, statistical models dominated, and uh, what is BM twenty five? I think maybe I don't know if you know the a bit of the backstory of BM twenty five. Like, why is it actually called BM twenty five? And I, I don't. <laughs> these, uh, yeah, I, I don't things. have the perfect answer, but there were other BMs, so there, there was like a BM twenty four, I believe. So I, I don't know exactly where the BM comes from. It's but kind of interesting that it stuck so much, right? Yeah, I, they were experimenting with different ways, I think, to combine these TF and IDF signals. So all these, uh, you know, lexical matching or statistical models are combining a term frequency and document frequency in different ways, essentially. And there's actually even axioms that dictate how they should be combined. So things like you add a, a query term to a document, the relevant score should only go up, right? You, you, the relevant score should never go down from adding mm, the term. Okay. It probably should increase some. It probably shouldn't increase. It probably should not add zero to the score. So things like this. Um, and so I think this BM25 exists in this framework where they're trying to think of the, the best way to combine these statistical measures of term frequency, so how important the term is to the document, and then document frequency, like how common is it in the corpus. Mm -hmm. um, and until when did these things dominate uh, kind of clearly the benchmarks? Until very recently, they clearly dominated, I would say. So after BERT, we started to see improvements somewhat regularly for retrieval. Um, before BERT, I think it's quite mixed depending on what data set you look at. But we still have a lot of the downsides of the neural methods in that they, they need training data, right? So this is kind of their motivation. Yeah, they want to yeah, get rid of it. Um, but even to the extent that BERT-based methods can be better, they're usually not better like transferred to another domain without training data. It, it's, you know, they're trained for some task and, and now they can outperform something like BM25. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we, we, we could say we're still kind of in an era um, of fully supervised neural retrievers sort of 
being at the top of the game or something? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. If you have supervision and a neural retriever, if you don't have supervision, I think that BM25 is often still a good, if not the best choice. Okay, so I think that you would find in in most uh, like people who want to apply some sort of uh, search for whatever application, uh, the go-to is definitely still the, um, the BM25. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it, so. It, not, not even getting into efficiency issues, right? So there's mm-hmm. all sorts of, these models are much harder to run than BM25. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so um, if we uh, follow up on the um, on a bit of the, the method section, I, would, I wanted to ask you about uh, contrastive learning. Because, uh, I mean, as I understand, um, a lot of these methods, both supervised and set, well, no, no, but these um, methods are uh, of representation learning for information retrieval are often based in contrastive learning, which is something that is also present in computer vision in a lot of machine learning domains. So, um, as uh, this is not this is not not a surprise in this paper, they use contrastive learning as well for 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 training their models. What is contrastive learning? Um, I guess it's a starting question. <laughs> um, so if you think that. about like a classification loss, w- how the loss is computed, um, with contrastive learning, it's generally comparing uh, two pairs. So like a query in a positive document has some score, say one, and a query in a negative document, the same query in a negative document has another score, say zero. So in this case, um, you know, you, much of the score is going to the positive document, the negative document got a very low score, so now your loss will be very low. But it's the idea that you're basically comparing these two uh, quantities and the loss, rather than taking, say, query positive document and then trying to classify this as relevant class, mm-hmm. taking query negative document, trying to classify it as non-relevant class. Um, which, yeah, which people more, do sometimes, but which is closer to what a, um, a re-ranker, like a second stage re-ranker, uh, would do, right? Yeah, like a binary think, classification of relevance. Exactly. I, I think this is the most common way to train a re-ranker, and contrastive learning seems to be more common in this setting. Mm-hmm. At least in the re-ranker setting, from what I've seen, there's not a lot of difference, though. You, you either loss will work okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Yeah. So it's, I think it just depends on what people started with, yeah, where so, we see that trend. Yeah. Okay. So you, I mean, if if I paraphrasing you, you the only thing you're telling the model is like this is a good pair, this is a bad pair. Um, the good pair should be close to your query. The bad pair should be kind of pushed farther away or something. Right. Or you're trying to push the scores apart. So you're trying to say the good pair score should be much higher than the bad pair score. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you think of, if we go back to BM25 briefly, so the way BM25 is going to sum over each term. So every time it finds a query term in a document, you add something to the score. So it's a summation. Um, so you can imagine, you know, you can't say a lot about an absolute score because the score will just always go up if the query is longer. Mm-hmm. You can add the to the query and all positive and negative scores will go up. So this is kind of motivation for something like this where the score, it, it may be based on some properties where you're, you, you don't necessarily want to say the score should be one here, it's more interesting to say the score should be higher um, than the negative document. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so if, um, so something that I wanted to quickly uh, mention is um, uh, one commonality that all these models have is, is to have a, like a query encoder and a document encoder or something like that. Sometimes this encoder is shared, sometimes it's not. I've seen this nomenclature of, of, of calling it Siamese encoders or something like that. But um, 
I've, I've sometimes find it a bit confusing because I feel like sometimes they use parameter sharing, like basically they have the same network and sometimes they don't. Um, what is uh, like, what is the Siamese network? Do they actually use this sort of... Um, so here, I think they do use parameter sharing. I'm not sure where they say it, but they say they use parameter sharing. I think mm -hmm. they're calling it like a dual encoder here. So dual encoder mm -hmm. and bi-encoder are also essentially the same thing, okay. different terms. Um, yeah, I think part of it's just practical. If you're sharing, if you're not sharing parameters, you know, you have twice as many weights in that large PLM, so it's you know twice as much to train. Basically. But is there like any fundamental advantage of why you would want to share weights in a kind of conceptual reason, not beyond the memory? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I could see arguments in both directions. Um, I, I think a middle ground that people do that makes sense kind of intuitively to me is prepend a token to the query and document. So it's the same weights, but you have special query token, the query, or special document token, the document. Mm. I believe Colbert, another paper, does this. Oh, okay. So this seems like a reasonable middle ground. I can I see why this, you know, that's, makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Um but yeah. as far as sharing weights, I think it just comes down to what you would learn about the task that transfers between query and document. And that's really hard to guess at to me. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, that, that's super interesting. I, 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 uh, I didn't know that. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, oh. uh, then the, the the network should sort of learn in some way. Like, okay, if there's this special token, this is a query, so I should encode it as such. I mean, a lot of quotes uh, because it's, it's, it doesn't work like that. But yeah, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how the encodings of query and documents actually differ, but it has the opportunity to do something different here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, in this in this uh, sort of recipe of contrastive learning, um, one of the key ingredients is the negative pairs, right? Um, so you say like you're basically saying, okay, this is like a good document, this is a bad document. You want to contrast, you want to kind of push away the scores, um, but uh, you cannot basically uh, tell the model all of the data set is negative and there's only one positive because like that would require a lot of memory. So you need to sort of come up with ways to um, make that more manageable. So what are the approaches to handle these uh, in general and how, like, what are the pros, cons and how do they... Um... Yeah, a really common way to do this um, is something like hard uh, in-batch negatives. So, you know, you have all these query document pairs and so the negatives for query document pair one come through the other pairs, so pair two through in. Um, so this is cheap because they're already in the batch. You're already, you know, computing the representations. But I don't know if I would call this hard negative or it's at least not a very hard negative mining technique because you're not really picking negative examples that illustrate any property or that are necessarily difficult to classify. You're just picking the negative examples that happen to be in the batch. So it's completely uniformly random. Yeah, assuming you didn't carefully construct the batch, which there is work doing that, but okay. this maybe is another topic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, whereas people do things like hard negative mining, which would be taking a model during training and then processing maybe the whole corpus to find the documents that are most high ranked that are not labeled as positive. So if this is actually a non-relevant document, this is quite nice because, you know, the intuition is it's where the model is most strong yeah. and, and you're using it as an example. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, like you're, you're uh, sort of uh, using examples that are more informative if they're like, if you pick documents that are closed that should not be close to the embedding of the query, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, that's the that, intuition that I um, think of. 
Yeah, that's the underlying idea here, I think. Like, if, if you imagine a document in another language, like anyone can say it's non-relevant. Even if it happens to be relevant, it's not because the query is in English and you assume the person doesn't speak the other language. Mm -hmm. So you can make it simpler and say, you know, there's no term overlap, but there's only overlap with terms like the. Well, still, even if you don't know much about the topic, it's pretty easy to guess that this document with no shared terms or minimal shared terms can't be positive, mm -hmm. and the one with some shared terms is a better bet. So you, you, you want the, kind of the most confusing example. The one the human would have the most trouble with is probably a good proxy for this. Um, so, you know, as close to matching the query as possible without actually being very relevant. Uh, interesting. To set up that contrast. Yeah, and I mean, this empirically has worked really well, right? And, and hard negatives is something that really makes a difference in um, when you when you run the, the the experiments. It does. So, I think this is one of. I mean, I guess there's a lot of results on dense retrieval lately, but this is one of the trends. Like, there's a good number of papers now showing that, you know, regardless of strategy, finding hard negatives is just really useful. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I find it quite uh, interesting because intuitively to me, I, I feel like um, I would expect that as long as you have a decently large batch and you let it train long enough, it should sort of eventually match, you know, like the performance, but it, it doesn't seem to be that the. Well, the case I think. Or it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. So let's, if we imagine we take the batch to include the whole corpus. So now what do we do with the negatives? Um, we could sum over all the negatives, but that means a lot of this contribution is probably coming from easy negatives mm, or, right? Yeah. Some are average. We could take the max, but now we've got to be sure that this was actually a negative. A negative yeah. And, and if we do that, this is similar to hard negative mining, actually. So taking the max from a whole batch. Is yeah, it's basically you're sort equivalent. Of taking nearest neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Um, for for negative, if you were to do that. Yeah. No, that's uh, fascinating. Um, okay, yeah. So uh, so far we have not we have only talked about the setting where 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 we have labels, right? Um, uh, these contrastive learning. So uh, I guess that the last ingredient to introduce here is the self supervision part, right? How do you create, um, well, how do you do this without having any labels by sort of cleverly having heuristics on the documents? Um, so what are, what have people tried uh, to do in this uh, space? So there's, people have looked at a good number of ways, I guess. Um, I'll just name some really basic ones. So like if you think of a news article or a Wikipedia article matching the title of that and the article text. Mm -hmm. um, you can think about mimicking what BM25 does. But again, this is it's probably not the hardest negative. So so better examples are things like a closed task or an inverse closed task, um, where maybe you, you pull out a snippet of a document and then try to use that snippet to match the rest of the document. So basically you take a snippet of a document, uh, you sort of uh, replace that, use that snippet as a like a pseudo query, exactly. and then the rest of the document, and then sort of maximize uh, the, the similarity of those representations. Exactly. And then maybe pick a negative document in some way. I'm mm -hmm. not, yeah, it depends on the method. So they're basically improving on this technique, I think. Mm -hmm. And as I understand, this is something, uh, this whole uh, self-supervised, um, uh, using this sort of uh, uh, inverse closed task that you mentioned, it is something that uh, has been used before, but normally in combination with a, with a fine tuning step, right? A little bit like the whole, like the lot of the NLP stuff of like, uh, uh, very large uh, self-supervised pre-training and then some fine-tuning on MS Marco or, or some labeled uh, data set. I think if MS Marco didn't exist, we'd see this happening a lot more. 
Um, it's hard, but it seems to be the case that just training on MS Marco is just as good as training on one of these like closed tasks and then fine tuning elsewhere. So, so I think the fact that we have this data set with so many labels is kind of hiding how well these can work in other <laughs> Actually, places. This is a really interesting point. Is it like, are you kind of saying a little bit like, if MS Marco didn't exist, we would have more res like the the research on these things would be ahead. Oh, I, I didn't now. even mean it in that way. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm not at all sure about. Okay. But what I mean is that, so for example, if I train a model on a closed task, it maybe will come close to MS Marco's performance, but it doesn't beat it. So I, I we don't really publish this. We don't really keep doing this because it's not quite as good as just using MS Marco, which we have. Yeah. Um, so like I, I've I mean, experimented with people but, like Wikipedia and but stuff. But that's that's a, a very um, I feel uh, interesting point. As in, um, uh, if there was um, abundance, more abundance of labels, <laughs> there would probably be uh, maybe less um, maybe less interest in uh, in the in self supervised uh, learning. But that's not the case. There's right, yeah. But or, but also without MS Marco, probably fewer people are interested in this at all because we wouldn't have all the evidence of things working so well, and so yeah. there would be fewer people going another direction. Maybe yeah, so yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Sorry for that um, slight detour. So, um, anything more that we should say about the, in a kind of a general sense, the self supervision applied to this? Uh, um, I don't think I. Have anything offhand other than like the details of their recurring span retrieval task? Um, okay, yeah, we, we can. I think we can. Uh, we can get that uh, on, on, into that um, right now. So just uh, let me recap. So um, the basically the com like normal right now the recipe for training dense retrievals that is kind of uh, more standard is using these self supervision um, tasks like ICT. On on some uh, on some corpus, and then using some fine tuning data set like MS Marco um, for um, fine tuning that, um, and then or or I mean or if the benchmark is uh, provides a data set fine tuning on on whatever that is right. Right. It's, or is that not? Yeah, a, I would say it's something like some sort of pre-training. So maybe that's IR specific pre-training like this ICT, or maybe it's just mask language modeling like a standard pre-training. Probably followed by pre-fine tuning on MS Marco, mm, followed okay. by fine tuning on whatever the final <laughs> domain is. Okay, 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 okay. I, okay. I think is the somewhat standard rest. So, so people are starting to get better self-supervision where the pre-training on pre-fine tuning on MS Marco is not as important. But it, it's if someone asks, I think you always take that option. Currently, like it, wow, it will okay. only help. Okay, so you can have. I mean, yeah, you can have like mask language model pre-training. Then some. Is is that actually? Actually, I I don't know if if you do, for instance, if you do a inverse closed task pre-training, is it common to start from a pre-trained language model that has been trained on some mask language modeling kind of thing, or are you just trained from scratch on ICT? That's true. People usually do start from a pre-trained language model, so it's actually adding like another pre-training. So it's just like a, yeah. a whole stack of of uh, pre-trainings uh, followed by fine-tuning. Yeah, yeah. So I I think what you can do is something like MLM. Fine tune on MS Marco, fine tune on your domain, or MLM, something like inverse close. Your performance is a, probably a bit worse than MS Marco, but maybe it works okay. And then fine tuning on some other domain. At least that's what I understand from experiments I've run and so on. I don't think there's a lot of work publishing this ICT type training in this domain, because like I said, it seems to be a bit worse than MS Marco. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
All right. Yeah. So then uh, that said, let's dive into the the actual method that they propose here because it's it's a bit like it has some um, details that are different from from previous work. So what do they do here? So they're Basically, idea here is to find passages that share something in common, so some span. Um, turn one passage to the query, the other into the document. So they start with a span like Yoko Ono, for example. Um, they, they find this in two passages. Um, and then so in the passage they wish to become a query, they take like a window of five to 30 terms around this span. So you get something kind of like a query. So the example they have here. Uh, it says something about Lennon songs, lyrics, and contents came from his wife, Yoko Ono. Uh, 2017, um, Yoko got co-writing credit. Something like that. So it, it's not at all a query, but you can see how in some ways it, it's similar to one. Yeah. Um, and then they match this with some other paragraph talking about Yoko Ono. Um, optionally, they remove that span, Yoko Ono, from the query or, or they don't. Um, Interesting. So what's the motivation for having both... Um options of, of uh, you know, keeping the recurring span versus not keeping it? At least intuitively to me, it probably makes sense as some sort of exact matching to encourage some sort of matching and maybe some sort of term importance might be modeled. I, I'm mm. speculating, obviously. Yeah. But I, I could see how keeping this Yoko Ono in there and would allow maybe the model to see that this is a very salient term and to try to match it against the other one. If you remove Yoko Ono, like in this example, it's topically similar, but I it, it might be hard to say that the passage is relevant if yeah, you ask I mean, someone to annotate intuitively, it. Intuitively, you want uh, whatever retrieval model uh, at some point to learn that if you search for a few keywords, you know, you maybe want to find the same keywords in a document. So uh, that, that sounds intuitively um, like reasonable uh, to me. So how does this um, actually compare to the vanilla ICT? I think it may be the fact they have two paragraphs. So rather than taking one passage and forming a query and pass, uh, you know, relevant passage out of that, they're using separate passages for the query and relevant passage. That's my understanding, at least. Yeah, so I, I think people normally are using the same passage with some standard close. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah, so that is actually quite a different conceptually, right, in how you construct... Uh... Intuitively, it makes a lot of sense to me because the passage shouldn't repeat the same information, right? So if you take both the query and a relevant passage from the same document, mm. it, it shouldn't repeat. Maybe, depending on the type of document, a lot of specifics, but in general, documents don't keep repeating themselves in different ways over and over, right? Um, so mm -hmm. this gives more hope, I think, of a close match to the query. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so that said, um, I guess we can jump into the uh, quickly mentioning um, the data sets that they're uh, using here for, for benchmarking this um, and what baselines they're comparing it to. So they have a lot of um, Wikipedia-based question answering data sets, essentially, like uh, natural questions, web questions, squad, entity questions. Um, these are all annotated in different ways, but the, the key idea is there's some uh, Wikipedia passage that answers your question, and there is a question, and you need to find basically the right passage to answer the question. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, there's a crowdsourcer who's given something, maybe they're, it differs across data sets, but for example, maybe they're given a passage, asked to come up with a question about this passage, and asked to highlight what part of that passage answers the question. Mm -hmm. But all of the 
uh, what are all of the because I'm, I'm assuming there's different ways of of uh, there's different metrics for evaluating uh, a benchmark. So what are the metrics that are going to be using in this paper and um, yeah, here they've really focused on this open domain question answering setting. And so remember the retriever here, its purpose is only to find candidates documents that you can pull the answer out of. So because of that, they're work looking at recall at 20 or they call mm -hmm. it, I think, top 20 accuracy. Um, essentially, this is a one if the document with the correct answer is in your top 20. It's a zero if it isn't. And then they average this over all the queries. Yeah, so, so this is some, like intuitively these sort of, uh, favors recall over precision, right? In, like you don't care so much if the document is at top, top um, ranked as, as more like it just re, like raw recall and in the big pool of documents, which is pretty different conceptually from what you would maybe want in a, you know, um, like in, in, in a search engine where like, you know, if users look at the only the top, you know, and it, like the, the trade-off I guess is, uh, it is. It's very different because of that open domain question answering. So I would have been curious to see like ranking metrics also, but I understand why they they don't go into them. And um, is there? Uh, do you know if if uh, it's common to use any other metric that takes into account like the the span that like the precise span where the answer happens more in the context of like extractive question answering, like overlapping the like because uh, I mean answer like intuitively when I think of answering a question. It's not just pulling up a document, right? It's like saying here is like there's a pretty it can be that there's a pretty defined place where this answer happens. This happens, but it happens in the the reader rather than the retriever. So the the metrics don't appear in this paper because they only look at the reader. But yeah, um, so for example, with Squad, I believe they have a measure of exact overlap um, with the answer you find and, and the annotated answer, and some sort of partial overlap. If I remember correctly, I think it's F1. So, so basically the, the job of the reader, you know, you get the candidate documents and you're supposed to point to some span in one of those that, and say this is the answer. And then the metric is comparing that span, you know, maybe caring about overlap, maybe requiring it to be exact, um, yeah. to the, the gold answer. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes, um, uh, that makes sense. Um, so, um, uh, baselines, yeah, quickly, uh, can we uh, quickly go through the baselines, VM25, BERT, ICT, condenser, what are these um, models? Yeah, so BM25, I think we talked about, um, mm -hmm. it's you know based on term statistics, uh, a traditional effective model. Um, BERT, I think we all know here, I suppose they're using it, um, well, they don't give a lot of details, but I imagine they're using it by, by taking the CLS token and then predicting whether a document is relevant. Just on the plain mask language modeling trained, uh, nothing else. Right? I think so. It doesn't talk about MS Marco pre-fine tuning, so I, I think so. Mm -hmm. um, they also look at another model tune, uh, trained with the inverse closed task. So this is the, the ICT one. Um, here, I think the difference is that the, the query and relevant passage are coming from the same document. And this has some sort of um, corruption. I don't remember exactly what they're doing here, but they're modifying the, the document. I think it's something like random masking um, yeah. to hide parts of it. Uh, yeah, looks like it. And then the condenser, co-condenser are um, essentially different pre-training tasks. Um, so they they try to create some loss 
um, that considers uh, spans of text in addition to the masked language modeling. Um, so it's and was this co-condenser? Uh, it's like a pretty recent and popular uh, method, right? It was. What was the sort of um, purpose it was created, or like what was it sort of um, uh, made for? What 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 does it excel at? Uh, condenser, co-condenser? I think their idea is to create some model that is really good at being fine-tuned for IR. So they're they're not trying to do self-supervised training the whole way, but they're trying to improve the pre-training here so they can get benefits when they then fine-tune it in some way for an IR task. So it's like creating a very robust uh, pre-trained model so that you can go and use that as a starting point for fine-tuning and whatever application you're using? I, I think that's their motivation. That's that's how they present it, yeah. Okay. And, and what they're doing is they have some contrastive loss where they're taking two spans, um, I think, from the same document and trying to say that these spans are similar. So representation of one span, representation of another span, the representation should be similar. So okay. it's like building on BERT, where BERT is only doing mass language modeling, looking at single tokens. So this is like some building on sequences, which is you know what you end up needing with like a dense retrieval model where ultimately you want one sequence to be encoded into a single embedding. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um so I mean I guess my, my question is um to what degree does it make sense to use this one as a baseline? As in was it sort of conceptually um trying to solve the same thing as the spider uh, was doing? I, I think it's trying to solve the same type of thing, yeah. So it's trying to find some pre-training that improves IR. Okay. I guess the details of whether you expect to do fine-tuning after this probably depends on how fine-tuning works. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, and finally, we have this DPR, right? What is this? Uh... Yeah, so this is a common, um, it stands for dense passage retrieval. So this is a really common bi-encoder um, model um, applied to tasks like this. It's basically BERT bi-encoder um, where they they use some sort of in-batch negatives and other negatives. So it's you know some of this negative mining, and it's just trained like a standard mine coder. So you get some vector for the query, some vector for the document, something like a contrastive loss. And this is supervised? It is supervised. So this is like, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the key point. It's, it's supervised. Okay. Um, so the uh, jumping into the results, we have uh, in table one, we have... Um, the results for uh, zero shot in the zero shot uh, setting, as in not uh, zero examples for fine tuning for the the method that they're proposing. So um, maybe what is your? I mean, we can comment a little bit on on a couple of exact numbers, but um, can you describe the this figure and maybe give your you know takeaways or what what is your first impression from it? Yeah, there's a couple takeaways. Um, so first, just to think about what's best. The best is this DPR because it's supervised. So yeah. they train it supervised on of data, apply it zero shot to these other tasks. This DPR trained on several data sets is, is just the best here. Mm -hmm. um, but looking at other parts of it, so one thing we didn't mention is they do this hybrid approach where they combine spider, their approach is called spider, with BM25 scores. Yeah, um, This does... Pretty well, also. So, comparing it to Spider, there's a an increase. Comparing it to BM25, there's often an increase. So, so one takeaway message, I guess, is that if you use a hybrid method here, then the pre-training does um, improve results. Yeah, it does improve quite substantially. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, uh, I think we haven't mentioned this uh, before, but the hybrid uh, version that they use is simply. 
a combination of the scores with a scaling parameter, right? That they um, right, and the scaling parameter is just one because they say they don't want to tune it because it's a zero shot setting. So it's just a combination of oh, the scores. Oh, they scores. don't even. I, I, yeah, I was just gonna yeah. say they might use some development set to. Um, yeah, they to use that. They say it's unrealistic, so we just set alpha to one. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, mean, it's I, I missed yeah. that part. Okay. <laughs> Uh, interesting. People often sneak in a small development set for a parameter like that, which yeah. is reasonable because yeah. you don't need a lot of data. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was my um, because uh, what is because I mean the the score here for query uh, and document. Um, I was assuming uh, I actually didn't know. I was just assuming that it was um, some type of of uh, just dot product or cosine similarity, uh, which would have a range typically from zero to one. I believe um, it's a dot product, so it, it could be... Okay, yeah. yeah, if it's not normalized, yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 okay. But what... I, sorry, I, I'm just asking because I'm, I, right now I realize I don't have a, any good idea of what this course, what BM25 score ranges look like. I have the same question of reading the paper. For <laughs> BM25, we don't know because you can always add a term and the range will increase. It it's, depends on what terms are in the query, how many of them, their IDFs, and so, so on. So it's not bounded, right? No. The, the score of BM25? No. It computes a score for every query term and sums them. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it, it could, so, yeah. I just have a, yeah. I mean, you could always add a stop word to the query and get a higher score. Um, yeah. Up to some point. So anyway, it seems to work really well with these. Uh, yeah, uh, it would be really interesting to know what the distribution of their scores, these dot products, look like. Mm-hmm. I wonder if BM25 is having effect for all queries, or if it's only having effect for some queries. Maybe occasionally they have a lower dot product, and here BM25 has more influence. I don't know, but I think that this could be yeah. something interesting going yeah, on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think this is interesting in the context. I think that we were talking last time on. Um, to what degree the future looked hybrid or neurodiverse kind of fully replacing. Um, it seems like right now, um, hybrid, uh, I mean, it, it, it looks like it's quite, surp- I mean, surprisingly to me, maybe, maybe it's not that surprising, but it, it's a um, very substantial improve with respect to any of the two methods um, separately. Yeah, yeah, they, they, it is a big improvement over BM25 when they combine it. Exactly, exactly. So it does look like they have some sort of complementary. Uh, Definitely. Uh, and then maybe we should look at it without the combination. Exactly, yeah. So, so what do you see there? Yeah, so like BM25 only versus spider only. Often, not always, BM25 is a bit better. It, it depends on the data sets, but there's a big gap for squad, squad and entity questions, and the gaps on the other data sets are smaller. So I would say that BM25 is performing better here if we have to choose yeah. one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say uh, the same. It's like it's pretty comparable and worse in, in other data sets. And I mean, I guess if, if uh, um, you're being a, a bit... Uh, like trying to speculate on how these results are obtained, like, like um, it does seem like it, it, it it's more uh, robust, right? Um, I do you mean uh, BM twenty five? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, in the, in the sense that uh, um, um, this is probably quite optimized for for their models, there, um, um, but not so much for. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the 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 question comes from a place of. It's kind of interesting how the, this uh, threshold of surpassing BM25 is still, as of 2022, sort of this sort of gold, um, uh, I don't know, like gold benchmark that is kind of a... 
It's very effective, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, but part of it is it doesn't look at a lot, right? It's only looking at these statistical properties and those are fairly general. It can't learn something that is good for one data set and will totally mess up performance elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So the takeaway would be, I don't know if they claim to be better uh, than BM25, but the takeaway would be still not better without uh, Right. Alone, it's not better, but maybe if you have a BM25 system, I could see someone looking at these results and saying, hey, maybe we should add Spider to it. You could mm-hmm. improve performance a bit. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else that you would want to add? I, I guess that something that would be interesting to see would be how the... Um, um, how the other hybrids compare to the Spider plus BM25, right? Like if you get some sort of very similar boosts from combining the co-condenser with BM25 or something like that, you know, if it's something quite specific about Spider that it really seems to capture some really, uh, you know, complementary thing that BM25 doesn't, or or if it's, um, or if like pretty much any uh, dense retriever. I think it also depends on the data set. So MS Marco, you know, people use this so often and it doesn't seem like the hybrid methods help a lot on MS Marco from what I've seen, at least in the context of re-ranking methods, where if you look at re-ranking methods on other data sets, mm-hmm. adding BM25 almost always helps. Um, okay. You mean when you, when you're trans, when, when you're doing like, um, out of the main retrieval? BM25 hybrid helps, whereas when you um, are evaluating in the same uh, domain as you trained, uh, it doesn't? Um, it, it's a bit different. So on the MS Marco data set, BM25 doesn't seem to help. It's hard to do full retrieval on other data sets because they're not large enough. So I, it's hard to say what's going on. So, but, so an MS Marco... Um, so the the results on MS Marco are uh, pretty much um, fully supervised and in the main results, right? right. I I believe so. Yeah. Um, um, to the extent people have experimented with BM25 plus another method, and again, I'm I'm thinking every ranking methods mostly. This is what I know best offhand. The BM25 is not adding anything there, where it is it is adds, adding something on other data sets. So it, would it be so it, would it be a good characterization to say? BM25 hybrid helps when you jump, uh, like when your training uh, domain and evaluation domain are um, different ones, like there's a substantial shift. I think that should be true, yeah. Um, so if you think about the, what could possibly happen, either the domains are so similar that training on the first data set is good enough and it will transfer well, or the domains are not that similar, in which case we know BM25 is pretty robust across domains. So mm-hmm. it seems very likely to help in that case. So yeah. to me, either way, it seems like something to try if not to default to. Assuming that's what you care about, this performance, and you're okay with running two models and mm-hmm. you know, all of these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, taking all of that um, aside. Uh, um, uh, is there, are there other things that you want to mention about this first um, I think uh, we could results. move on to the other table. Um Absolutely. So they have these zero shot settings also. Um, so yeah, what what is uh is you, are you talking about table two or table three? No. I think we could should we skip to table three? I think so. Yeah, I, I think so uh, also. That's fine. Um yeah, so in table three this is like a few shot setting. So they have in examples and in supervised examples that they use to train. 
and then they um, evaluate after training on that small number of examples. Mm -hmm. So here, um, what we see is that as the number of examples increases, the, the benefit of using the, the spider method decreases. Um, so pre-training is, is useful in a zero-shot setting or in a low data regime, it seems like. But ultimately, the pre-training is not buying much um, when you have access to a lot of training examples. Um, yeah. I mean, this would seem to validate their, I mean, the, the kind of hypothesis that their pre-training task is superior um, as a standalone training for unsupervised dance retrieval, right? I, I think so, yeah. Um, it is better than a co-condenser in the, the lowest data regime, looking at only 128 data points. And it's a bit better looking at a larger number, 1024. So I, I think this does support pretty yeah, reasonably, I mean, yeah. That is interesting, but it's also interesting to reflect on like, okay, to what degree this is, like, okay, this task seems to be superior in the fully unsupervised setting, but if you only need, uh, you know, 128 examples to sort of bridge that gap, right. um, does it really matter that, that much? Uh, Practically, maybe not. Um, scientifically, maybe it, it, it is useful because it points in the you know, direction of a pre-training task that's working better. I, I think this is, you know, it's one step on the road, not the end of the road. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we can improve on this. Of um, course, of course. Even with 1024 examples, it seems better than co-condenser often, not always. Um, mm, okay. It depends if you look at natural questions or trivia QA. So on, on this trivia QA data set, I think it's always better than co-condenser. If you look at the natural questions, it's quite close to co-condenser. Um, so the the benefits are starting to disappear at 1,000 examples. At 1,000, yeah. So it's more, it's more close to what, indeed, it's more what, like the 1,000 is closer to the, the threshold, right, where, where um, the, the gap is, uh, is bridged. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, to me, this points in the direction of this is good as a replacement for labels, but it's not improving anything over having labels. I don't know that I expected it to, but, it, but it's interesting. There's no improvement at all once you have... A yeah. Lot of labeled data. yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess the follow-up uh, question would be: Do you think this task uh, has a potential to become the like a new standard for in the in this sort of uh, pre-training stack of of tasks, or is it just like MS Mark is just too good to? <laughs> no, no. I, I think <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of benefit in having better pre-training tasks, and I. I it's very early, but to me, this seems like something that is here to stay at least for some time. Mm -hmm. So the the idea: don't take the query and paragraph from the same document. Um, use some recurring span to align two different documents. Create them in that way. I think it's very intuitive to me, especially when you think about repetition in documents. Yeah, this always comes up for me. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's super simple, right? Uh, it's not like uh, some convoluted heuristic base 12 hyperparameters thing it's yeah. like pretty straightforward to it, it's straightforward and the you know the filtering they do is very straightforward right something about you know eliminate stop words has to be some length mm -hmm. you take a query between 5 to 30 tokens you know it, it's all pretty intuitive i think yeah um so i don't know do you have any other uh, comments to make about table uh, 3 before we jump into a little bit more of the um, i don't know i have a couple of points on on a bit of a broader picture. Um, I think we can things. jump into the high-level ones. Um, I think, like I said, the main takeaway here is that there are benefits. They start disappearing as you have more data. Um, I guess that's not necessarily surprising, but it's yeah. interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, perfect. Yeah, so um, what I wanted to bring up was... So, so in my in my in my view, what's holding back right the 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 adoption of a lot of the neural retrieval stuff is this uh, convenience aspect of it, or, or of like being able to take something out of the box and just plugging it in and having it working. Uh, where BM twenty five, like like we've discussed, is still super relevant. Um, so my question is, in this sort of goal of getting something that works always out of the box really well, to what degree it's important that that um, self-supervised tasks, um, you know, like to a degree it is important to be able to train uh, self-supervised if you can do it with uh, generic labels. Uh, if if um, sort of, I mean, like you guys said, yeah. training with MS Marco and generic labels seems to work really well. Why would we even want to, um, you know, uh, to train models without labels at all? That's a good question. Um, Purely practically, maybe there's no need to train models without labels if your only interest is performance and MS Marco is transferring fine to your domain. I think what matters, though, is whether or not this is true. So ignoring licensing issues around MS Marco, I, I think it may not be allowed for commercial use, but I, okay. I'm, I'm not a you know, company. I don't know <laughs> offhand. Um, I've heard things like this. Um, ignoring that, I mean, you could imagine maybe the domain is so different that it's not going to transfer from MS Marco. And so if you have a self-supervised task, yes, it's not still quite out of the box, but you could run some training thing to create something with your data set um, that is now specialized to it that would not work with MS Marco. So I, I think maybe two angles here. One is... Being more robust to different domains. If there's somewhere where MS Marco probably doesn't transfer, maybe this can help there. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue is it's, I think, just scientifically interesting. How can we avoid this need for labels? Um, can we can we use both of them? Right. The ideal thing is we do some pre-training like this. It works great. You you know fine tune on MS Marco works even better. And, and so now you're making you know use of the labels and and some good pre-training. Um, yeah, but I mean, purely practically, if pre-fine tuning on MS Marco and then transferring to your data set works, purely practically, it probably doesn't make a difference. Yeah, right. it's I only mean, practical I, 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 my, my perspective is like a, from a, from the perspective of an engineer who just exactly. wants to get something up and running. Uh, they don't. They're not going to care <laughs> if right. you use labels or you didn't use labels to, right. um, to train I, that. I don't right? think it matters then. But what they could care about is the properties that come from using labels versus not using labels. And maybe now someone ran pre-training on your medical documents or your highly specialized mm. domain. And so you can do this out of the box. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then from a qualitative, beyond the the accuracy or, or, or MRR recall metrics, uh, I would expect that maybe the the type of biases and, and um, behavior of the model might be quite different if it has only seen um, right, if it has only been trained self-supervised versus um, with labels, that's true. Right. Like, um, um, this is part of. So, for example, if we think about their task, if they always eliminate the recurring span, so they always eliminate Yoko Ono in the earlier example, we probably aren't going to get a great model out of it. And actually, I think they do an ablation that confirms this mm-hmm. uh, because it's not going to have any good text matching properties. And the MS Marco labels. Are easier in that sense yeah. that they are going to give you these these properties by default. Um, so I, I guess you can use MS Marco labels rather than trying to design a better pre-training task. 
Yeah. Um, it is, yeah. Do you have any, any, uh, I mean, I guess that, the, um, do you have any, uh, either intuition or examples on what, what could be the failure modes of, of a model like these that has never seen labels, so to speak? If I was going to try to break this model, I would um, take a query and a lot of documents around the same topic, but not talking about exactly the same thing. So, you know, there was this example, Yoko Ono. So I would have documents that have her name and Lennon's name in different ways. And depending on the query, you know, maybe this topic match would be enough um, that the, the correct document wouldn't be identified. So I guess to restate what I'm saying in a less convoluted way mm -hmm. is that looking at the examples here, uh, the training seems to point towards some sort of topic match. So maybe some sort of exact match of some salient terms like Yoko Ono and then some sort of topic agreement. Yeah. So I, I have no idea if this model would break if I tried to create a confusing data set with many documents of the same topic. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where I would wonder about how robust it is. Mm -hmm. And their evaluation metric top 20, I don't know how many documents there are of a topic also. I, I, I just have no intuition for this. Probably a lot more than 20, so I think this is reasonable. Um, yeah. But there's a difference between saying this is a document that could be a good candidate versus saying this is the first document. Like I, normal ranking metrics, you know, will heavily penalize you for getting the first document wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would um, be really interesting to, to see, um, these other uh, metrics, yeah, uh, right beyond yeah. Uh, recalling how that that compares. But uh, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting research question for someone else, you know, who might right. <laughs> no. I, I think it it's <laughs> very interesting work, and it's a nice step in the right direction. It's really encouraging to see that pre-training is now, you know, working fairly well. Yeah, um, especially yeah, yeah, yeah. combined with BM twenty five. Um, okay, so I guess one of, uh, I can ask you, uh, staying on this bigger picture thing, how do you see the, if you were to make a prediction of, of how the timeline looks in the, assuming that some sort of neural retrieval stuff is going to become more mainstream into, uh, you know, just information retrieval in, in pretty much everywhere. Um, how, how do you see that timeline uh, happening and how does this sort of work sort of make you uh, be like more hopeful or less hopeful or i think this is a nice step in the right direction to outperforming bm25 not necessarily you know like an 80 percent or a 50 percent you know some massive improvement like we see with re-ranking methods but i think looking at how close bm25 is on most data sets things are to me, they're getting fairly close to the point where you can consistently outperform BM25 robustly, not necessarily by a huge margin, but you know by a significant margin. Um, so I would, I mean, clearly I'm just guessing, but I would think within the next year or so, maybe two years, um, it would be possible to do this. Yeah. It's already very close. I, I mean, within two years to sort of start seeing models that truly and robustly outperform BM25 in these sort of out-of-the-box performance setting? Yeah, I mean, Spider is really close to that. So this mm -hmm. could be out-of-the-box, and it's just a little under BM25. So like yeah. two years is maybe even a little conservative. Yeah. I, in a year, I... I mean, yeah. I, yeah, actually, something that uh, has uh, been announced only a couple of days ago, and we only could look into it very uh, like uh, quickly, was this um, OpenAI text and embedding API. Basically, they announced that they are... Uh, as part of the, as part of their API, you can compute embeddings for 
you know, texts um, that are really good for retrieval, apparently, like just out of the box like that. Um, I think that's still uh, like a, a paid thing. And it's, I, I, I mean, I, maybe we were going to talk about this in the future, but actually that uh, I think it, it, it tries to solve this sort of problem, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's very out of the box. I think you put in some document and query, it creates embeddings for you. A common thing to do then is to take the max similarity between each query embedding and, and document embedding and then sum them. Um, so yeah, that's fully out of the box. I, I guess the, the only question to me is how much it improves over BM25. It, it seems to, you know, as we were skimming the paper earlier, yeah. you know, looking through it. Um, but I don't have a, a great sense of exactly where it lies. But it, it seems to already be making progress, if not have completed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely going to be interesting to to look at that. We might talk about it uh, in the future. But in my mind, it's also interesting that this whole space of having language models as a service, as a kind of business model, or just kind of as a paradigm of how these uh, uh, large language models are sort of exposed through an interface instead of the usual downloading a checkpoint and, and running it. Um, I think that's a kind of, like, kind of interesting space that's ever since GPT-3 was announced is sort of developing and you know a lot of labs only, um, uh, well, like OpenAI only yeah. providing access via this. And uh, um, anyway, I, I hope that we're going to talk about this uh, more. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Are, are there other things, topics that um, are... Uh, one final thought. Uh, we were talking about practicality, you know, from the perspective, like an engineer who wants to deploy it. Yeah. From that perspective, this GPT stuff has an issue in that you have to save all these embeddings. It's going to be a massive amount of storage space. So you, you may be okay with computational efficiency, but it's even if it is outperforming BM25, mm. saving all these embeddings to disk is extremely expensive. Like, okay, okay, from a simple, like, uh, you know, the number of floats and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, an embedding, I think GPT-3s are larger, but 768 dimensions, each is a float, and now the storage sky scales with the length of the document. This is a new property. So every term you add to the document costs you some storage space. Mm, yeah. Whereas with the spider, a bi-encoder, it's the same size per document because you save one vector. Um, I, this is getting a little off topic, maybe. But yeah, no, no, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all of these, like, like, I mean, in, in this uh, bigger picture of how, of the adoption of these things uh, by engineers, this is uh, super relevant, right? So, so um, I'm not super, uh, you know, um, read into works that um, optimize these these sort of things or look at things like how much performance you can keep. Um, when you, I don't know, like uh, reduce the dimensionality of the and, and all of this, but um, but it's definitely um, important to the, to this question. And, and there are a lot of tricks you can do there to reduce it, like quantization or saving it, you know, an integer rather than a what is it, four byte float? Yeah, you know, there, there's all yeah, yeah. So, it does sound a little bit like uh, we don't have time to uh, discuss it, but I, yeah, yeah, we should definitely get in get into that. Maybe we could do a. Um, you know, focus on that for for one episode. Yeah, we could look at one of these like term-based models where they try to save the embedding of each term. You know, they have some interesting, slightly different properties. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but if if that's um, it, I think we can leave it at uh, here. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and uh, all right, so I think that was it. Um, I'll see you in the in the next one. Yeah. See you next time. <laughs>